Good afternoon and good morning in NYC. I'm connected to someone across the pond today. This is the uh, the emergence of Black Britain through music, art and culture. And we have an amazing special guest today, someone that I'm a huge fan of. And this is going to be brilliant and I can't wait to talk to her. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I am talking about Skin. Hi, Hi Skin. how are you doing? Hi there. I'm doing good. I'm doing even better sitting talking to you. And uh, I'm really excited to talk to you. So thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. It's been too long. It's been too long, Lisa. It has. And you, and, and you are, as we discussed, you're over in uh, New York City. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I'm here. I'm actually in Brooklyn. So it's, you're um, in Brooklyn. It's, uh, it's, it snowed yesterday for most of the day. Um, but today it's a lovely, bright, sunny, crisp uh, morning. Gorgeous. Well, we're on 4 p.m. here, so it's a little uh, it's a little darker and a little duller. But um, and, and talking of Brooklyn, actually, I used to always say Brooklyn was like a, a, a Brixton was the Brooklyn of the UK. And, yeah. and you are a Brixton girl, aren't you? I am Brixton girl. Yeah, I'm um, born in Lambeth Hospital. Actually, my dad was in the RAF, so we spent a lot of time on army bases. And then when we were, I think around five or six, when we had to go to full-time school, that's when we um, came back to Brixton because my granddad um, had a house there, had a house there for the, you know, since the 60s, really. Um, and so, yeah, we came back and just uh, I lived in Brixton. And my, all my family's still there. So, yeah, I'm kind of Brix- Brixtoner, half-born and bred. Now, we, we, for the audience, we kind of know each other. We've, we've, we've known each other over the years and I've always yeah. been... Oh, you've been one of those people that whenever I see you, I've no problem knowing that you'll be a lovely, consistent person to bump into. That's what I'll say about you. You are... A, 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 you know, you're a, <laughs> which a is world hard world, in London, eh? Which is good. Well, you're a London Brixton so girl. London's so geeky, man. People in London are like, want me to say hello to you next minute of the day? And I'm like, you know what I'm talking about. about. You know exactly, exactly what I mean. talking about, love. <laughs> exactly. But did you know that I was uh, grew up in Brixton? I don't know if you knew that. I did not know that. Yes, I did. Wow, so where? I've been reading. We're, we're going audience. We're going to be audience out there listening. We're going to be talking uh, about uh, uh, Skin's book, which is uh, when is your book coming out? Is it out in the yet? It's not out quite yet. Exactly. Is it? Is that it came right? out in September. Oh, sorry. Apologies. Yes. That is very bad. So yes. that's a bad start to interview. A slap on my wrist. So <laughs> it's been around for, for since September, but that's still a very new release uh, of, of your mm. book. And this is is this your first book that you've had out, or have you had a? Have you yes, had... my first book that I've written. Yes. Yeah, and, and this is about your life, and, and you talk a lot about Brixton. I've, I've, I've read a lot of the book, and uh, it, it's it's amazing. And so, yes, me being from Brixton, I've been having this journey. Yeah. Uh, 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 and uh, with this show being uh, about the, uh, uh, I would say, uh, the influence of black music and art and culture, Brit- Brixton is a real epicentre of that, wouldn't you say? I mean, absolutely. Sure you would agree. I mean, yeah. dubstep came out of Brixton. I mean, uh, I mean, I think that where you have a community that is underfunded and underfed, um, and still incredibly creative, some of that, some of that kind of angst gets into music and I think that in London there's a lot of um, hubs of studios I've worked with a couple of charities in Brixton uh, with new kids that are kind of like underprivileged and um, helping you know give free stuff free advice you know helping them build songs and stuff like that I've done that over the years a few times in Brixton yeah so I'd say yeah it's a real hub of all kinds of creativity not just music I'd say so how have you coped with lockdown are you making new projects and uh, new music and how are you using all this time yeah I mean that's the thing about lockdown I think artistically um I mean I'm somewhere wherever I if I'm going to stay somewhere for, for, for a few months I always build a little studio um and I have to have it's really important for my kind of mental health and well-being to have a room that I can close the door and just fondle about with my gear and my bits and make music and do all kind of artistic things and I got my drawing stuff here. I got my Zoom stuff, my recording stuff. I got I do a radio show, so I got that. Hmm. Uh, we always a creative person or a musical person. But tell us how it started for you. What what you went to art school, right? I actually went to art school. Yeah, so I um, went to uh, London College of Furniture, and then I did interior architecture, interior design, and computing. So, yeah, I love to draw. I did all the original Skunkanetsi T-shirts, all the original Skunkanetsi flyers. Um, yeah, I did all of that. Love it. I love it. And I, now I've got to do, design a new T-shirt. So that's what I'm drawing at the moment. I haven't started Amazing. yet. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Can't wait to see those. I'll be getting one of those. And, uh, but you weren't always in London, were you? I think you went to, to uni in the north, right? I went to Middlesbrough. 
Middlesbrough, tea, sorry, Teesside, actually, yeah, Teesside. That's funny because my family is from near Middlesbrough right. and I grew up in Brixton, so we've been following each other to, along the same path for these years. <laughs> following each other around, around England. And what did your father do? Um, he did lots of jobs and he actually ended up being on the Queen's plane. So he flew a couple of times with the Queen and the royal family, Prince Philip and Charles when he was young and all that stuff. Because he's a, my dad's very good looking, so he was an air steward and he, um, he's very pale as well. So I guess they like that. <laughs> and uh, very good looking, very pale. So, yeah, he, he, did, he was um, one of the first black stewards on the, on the Queen's Plane. Wow, that's incredible. The Queen's Plane. That's an incredible story. Uh, um, and was that, what, 80s, 70s? Yeah, we're talking, um, gosh, early 70s. Yeah, early 70s. Well, that's just amazing. And how was that for you and your mum growing up? Yeah, my mum hated it. She hated it. I mean, she says to me, uh, yeah, there was one bus that would come to the airbase and a day and that was it. And of course, my dad being a, a party guy, you know, he would be, um, she'd just be left alone with four, four kids or three kids at the time. Um, and, you know, I think th- it was just, there were just very few black people on the base. So not only did she feel like her husband wasn't there, then she was, didn't have a lot of people to hang around with and didn't have a lot of time. Um, and I remember there's one thing that didn't, uh, which wasn't in the book, but she was telling me, yeah, one time um, my dad was supposed to look after me. So she said, right, I'm going to go out for a night. You know, I'm gonna, I want to have one night out. I haven't had a night out in years. And he said, OK, um, I'm coming back now. And she said, OK, well, I'm leaving now. So you'll be back in two minutes. And he said, she said, yeah. And my dad didn't come back. And apparently I was found about to cross the motorway because I was loved. I used to just like to open the door and wander out and I was three years old. And my mum said, yeah, you were found by another neighbour, the next door neighbour, caught you about to run across a motorway and picked you up and just basically had you in his house for the rest of the night because my dad didn't come home. He got drunk and didn't come home. And so she came home. No phones or anything in those days and was, was like, where's Debbie? And he, I was at the neighbours. So, you know, I think that... Jamaican culture, it's kind of like when we got to Brixton, it kind of felt like finally we were in a situation where we were in a community that was ours and we were built it and there was lots of things that we could do that were part of our culture and it's, there was like a, a survival homeliness to Brixton because there were just so many black people there. I mean, um, I remember as a child, the only time I saw black people were in, or saw white people were in church. Brixton was very, very black in the centre of Brixton. And you get out into the suburbs, it, you know, you have different types of cultures and more diversity. But in the centre of Brixton, it was really lots of black people and the odd white person now and, the, now and then. <clears throat> and so, I mean, I, I kind of grew up in this kind of a second British Jamaica. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Jamaica once removed, but like an English version. Yeah. Um, which meant that, um, you know, it was about... It was about uh, keeping strengths and having solidity, solidity and, and just being a kind of almost like a petri dish in, in a society that was telling you all the time they didn't want you. I mean, that's the message I got up, mm. grew up with, that you weren't wanted and you, well, this wasn't your country. You know, the classic thing of where are you from? Mm. Um, you know, I'm from England. No, but where are you really from? Because yeah. we know you're not really from here. <laughs> but when we were growing up, that was like a normal thing. Now people get the insult, you know, but yeah. when, when you're growing up, it was like very normal to have that set to you so many times a day. And so I didn't feel... Um, I didn't feel uh, British and I felt Jamaican and I ate Jamaican food. Mm. I, you know, all my friends were, their parents were for Jamaica. We just didn't really mix. Yeah. And it wasn't until I went to Jamaica, I realised how Jamaican I wasn't. I realised that <laughs> that's my mum's country. It's not yeah. mine anymore because I remember being in Brixton Market. I talk about it in the book. I'm, being, I'm in Brixton, um, I'm in uh, Mandeville Market. In, uh, in Manchester, in the centre of Jamaica. And I remember walking there and people were talking, chicken bug, buy some chicken bug. And I was like, I didn't understand the word. <laughs> I, didn't, I literally didn't understand the word. And it was quite shocking because I thought, oh, this is my country, I'm going to, this is normal. And I got there and I realised how different my mum's upbringing was to mine. And how British you are, and that you are a British woman, essentially, but yeah. you're, but you're I, also and Jamaican. that really caused an identity crisis of quite a few years, because mm. then I'm like, well, if I'm 
because you know Jamaicans are talking about going back home we're going to go back home one day and I was like well if, what am I going to do because I don't want to go back home this is not my you know this mm. is lovely and I loved it and I say I loved it to my core mm. I didn't want to leave but I knew it wasn't my country I knew it was my mum's country yes. um, and then if England isn't my country then what What am I you know yes. what's my identity because we were that first post Windrush generation that actually grew up in England yes. and all of our parents and all our friends' parents that were black didn't grow up in England um, and we were the first ones that did it so we were, we were the ones that were working out how to be in our identity and what to say and how to, how to cope yes. you know, in this world that was familiar and unfamiliar Yes, and I think it's something that many people uh, unfortunately are not sympathetic to for want of a better word maybe not that any, we're looking for, anyone's looking for sympathy as such but just understanding and taking the time to kind of take that into consideration it reminds me of uh, a famous black footballers we have like Ian Wright and, and people yeah. say you know treating him and he's like this is my home what you want to tell me to go back to where I come from or you want to tell me I'm not a British or English England player you know this is where I grew up you know, it's um, yeah, exactly. A There's thing. a book um, out right now called Black and British, and they actually David um, Ola. I've forgotten how to say. I've name. forgotten it as well, and I know exactly who you're talking about, and I'm a big fan of his. Yeah. And his brother, he has a brother, yeah, exactly. doesn't he? He's amazing, yeah. and and you know, he talks in the book about how. Um, Black people have been in countries, they came in with the Romans. That was the first time black people en masse came into the country with the Romans. And they didn't come as slaves, they came as free people because the Romans had taken over so many countries and they blended with those countries. So they came, they were Northern Africans and they came in and also and also the Moors. And so you could say to some people, actually black people have been here longer than a lot of white people because they came afterwards with the Vikings. Yes. You know, so um, yeah, I mean, it's it's just... And I think there's definitely a kind of dual thing going there that our generation had to work out. And I can imagine for you, there was a triple thing because then you're seen as kind of like, you know, I used to hate the term when people used to say half caste because I'm like, well, they're not half of anything. No, exactly. My dad, I tell my dad off for saying that my dad's, this is my stepdad who's Guyanese, my my biological dad's Jamaican, but he says it. I say, dad, you can't say that anymore. I'll say what my blood clout wanna say. <laughs> so you he, can't you tell know. them anything. You can't tell your parents. They don't get no. it. They can't tell them anything. But you're right, and it is you know for me as well. It's interesting listening to you talking about. So my 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 mother was north. She's northern. She's from near Middlesbrough, and but she was very immersed in in and in black Jamaican stroke Guyanese culture in Brixton. So it was very much like you. You know, my house, our flat. You'd walk in. The speakers were huge. The music was loud. You know, the right? spliffs were flowing, uh, and it was it was just like you say you felt uh, like I mean for me uh, we can we don't need to get into this I guess but sometimes people don't know where I'm from I'm, I'm mixed race I, I, but I, I essentially I feel I'm a black woman as far as the way the world sees me and as uh, my experiences but of course sometimes people go well I didn't know that or whatever I mean there's you know colorism and all the rest of it um but but I, I identify so much with what you're talking about growing up and feeling that Brixton was the place uh, and I don't know for you with whether you, when you did step outside of that. So, for example, I went to you went to a school. Let's talk about school. You went to a school called St Martin's in the Field, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I, I almost went to that school, but I ended up. Going, did you know Charles Edward Brook in in Camberwell? Yes. Oh my God, you went to Charles Edward Brook. I went to Charles Edward Brook. Didn't we used to try and fight each other and stuff? I think your school used to kick my school's ass. We used to fight each other. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and there would always be these meetings outside the school where you had to beat them up because yeah. we were hated because we had the brown you know we were seen as the posh one with the brown uniform yeah we were not so you had to well, prove I yourself I, I think you know kids they just need a reason they're just clannish and cliquey and they just need a reason to fight other people yeah so yeah we were always trying to fight you guys yeah you were a girls school as well right it was a girls school huh? so two it was a girls school yeah, so my, yeah. Girl school. and then we had um dick shepherd down the road dick shepherd was road. hardcore and then opposite, we had tulse hill yeah dick, is, um, dick shepherd was mixed i think it's it been, was mixed my cousin went now, there it's gone yeah but tulse hill is all boy school and I ended yeah. up doing my sixth form there. Yeah. You see, you got to sixth form. I didn't even get to sixth form. I was out. I, I kind of jumped into the music straight after school, which is, um, you know, probably sometimes yeah, I wish I, I hadn't. I, listen, I wasted about 10 years. <laughs> so, you know, you, I wasted 10 years before I got into music. So, yeah. Do you that, feel, that do you like, actually feel like that's interesting? Than me. See, this is the thing I don't know because I, I have the thing, the opposite thing, where I think, oh, you know what? So maybe I wish I'd gone to uni and sort of drama school which I wanted to do for like a few years it's funny how you do tend to kind of go you know what I should have but for you I mean I would say definitely I mean you've got so, I mean yeah I mean 
you 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 are you live and breathe music and and that is you that's your essence and of course you, you you're artistic and you draw and you do these other things but yeah I mean you live and breathe it don't you so I can see that you would feel that way that I wish I'd kind of just gone boom so so and going back a little bit to like I said we're talking about growing up in Brixton being black and sort of coming from a, a Caribbean Jamaican Guyanese whatever heritage and feeling comfortable and like this it was like an island almost right I used to feel mm. like we we're on this island and I personally because I was talking about school um, for example. So I ended up teaming up and meeting a majority of white girls, white people that were living in southeast London. So that was a much more of a white area, I would say. Yeah. Um, maybe, some, you know, just that's the way I, only I can describe it. And it was it was like stepping outside of that was like, wow. And I could see the racism uh, and how that was my sort of experience of how bad it was, really. And I knew it, mm. I knew it was. But we'd, I'd see that I'm sure you did on the, uh, we I was grow, uh, grew up on Stockwell Park Estate. And all the walls oh, would. Yeah. Uh, I went to Stockwell. Um, I did not know we had the. We was, I went to Stockwell um, Junior School. You went to Stockwell Primary, so, so I, I yeah, went to Duran. You did you, the skateboard park. You know, yeah, the I literally park. that. Yeah, I used, I used to, skate. to skate in that skateboard. So we did probably I. Probably bumped into. Uh, listen, I'm telling you now that we must have bumped into each other. I know. Because I went to Stockwell Junior School, and I used to after school. I used to go to that skateboard park and skateboard. Yeah. Uh, on that thing, so um, it's crazy. How it's really crazy, isn't this. it? I didn't know this about you. And how many years have I known you? I know. Years, I guess we just have. Unfortunately, I mean, we we kind of always bump into each other, and I've never had. But now I'm getting that chance, and I've always wanted to. But it's just the way it works, isn't it? And we sort of know each other around. It's always lovely to see you, but we've never actually been able to have this conversation so when I've been reading your book I'm like I can't wait to talk to you about this because it's so <laughs> lovely to talk about it and it ties in so nicely with the show but yeah so I, I was a roller skater I don't know if you were a skateboarder were you a skateboarder or a roller skater I had the roller skates Right, so straight 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 my swing. Yeah, I, I, I was. My mum wouldn't um, let me skate, skateboard. Yeah, then I I didn't roller skate. Sadly, I um I ice skated. Yeah. So so I wasn't really allowed to go there. I was a bit too young, and my mum used to get funny about it. And I think there was a bit. There was used to be a bit of a fight outside and stuff. And I was dying to go, but she wouldn't. And wasn't there a was it a disco as well up there? It, there was a disco, and which <laughs> I wasn't allowed to go to. I was too young for that. But um, I we we would go every Saturday. In the afternoon, every Saturday afternoon, just skate in circles. I loved it. I mean, I I'm, I still ice. You know, you, you haven't, I haven't lost it. I can still ice skate. Can you still do it? Can you go backwards? Um, <laughs> uh, I can go backwards and I can do turns and stuff. I haven't done it in a while, but yeah, I used to do turns, little jumps, backwards, oh a lot backwards, because that was always fun. Can we maybe um, expect to see a video? Just not gliding think, on one foot and all that stuff. I think we need to see a video, one of your music videos, like with this skin. I'm, I'm calling it. I'm calling <laughs> it. Yeah. Take me a week to get back up there, but yeah. Yeah, but well, let's. <laughs> Let's let's look if, look forward to that. I'm going to get on to you about that. But yeah, so so yeah, we have all this stuff going on. Uh, and like I say, when I stepped outside of that, I, I really experienced. I thought, wow. And and but as I was saying, I'd see scrawled on the walls. Uh, it was often I'm picking football teams. People may get upset if I say this, but don't. It's nothing personal. It's just the way it was. It was often Chelsea NF, Millwall NF, and I remember seeing that That's as a like, little yeah. girl. And the National Front, and sometimes I think they, I think I saw them in South East London in a uh, East Lane off Walworth Road, but I don't know if I. I ever saw them in Brixton because I'm not sure they would have been too comfortable in Brixton flashing those forms around. Oh, they used to do runs in Brixton where so they, they would did, just did run they? down the street and then just try and hit as many people as they am. I mean, like a big, you see like a group of like 10 of them. Yeah. And they'd run down, just not very often, but they'd run down Brixton High Road and just like hit people and whatever. And, you know, you you know, the skinners would just pop down to Brixton and everything. They'd jump off the bus, create havoc and then run off again. And then run know? off again. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, and you, it's right. I mean, in those days, and I think even football fans will say the same, they weren't affiliated to certain football teams. Yes. That's why we never supported Millwall. Yeah. Which is weird because <laughs> I ended up living next to Millwall, you know, stadium. But Millwall, um, and, and it was... You know, but Brixton was kind of like our haven, you know, when they did that occasionally, but, you know, then it'd be a full scale fight because, you know, Brixton kids weren't going to sit there and just take it. We weren't 100%. Scared of them. Um, <laughs> and, you know, um, it'd be a full scale, full scale fight. But I do remember getting told, because I always loved my DMs and my friends were like, you can't wear them. They're, that's the, you know, NF, NF shoes or whatever. And I was yeah. like, no, no. You know, I love my skinny jeans and my DMs and my braces. It's <laughs> funny, isn't it, with that? Me. Because I was talking about this recently and, I, and I'm quite late to the DMs. I think I bought a pair years ago and they really hurt my ankles. So I thought, sod this, I'm not wearing these. But recently I got some and I was saying to someone, it's funny because you can wear these now with such no, but in that there was a time, it's exactly what I said, there was a time where this belonged to 
you know, white skinhead national front. Yeah, national um, front. The GMs and Fred Perry. Yeah, and it's really nice though that that's. And then you know, then it kind of filters a bit into rude boy vibe, and that's a whole different thing. It, and it was. It was connected know. to. And I always found that like such a juxtaposition. Why do skinheads love scars so much? You know, the yeah. number, You know, and they got the DMs and they got the rude boy look. You know, it's so black, and yeah. they claim they hate it. I well, mean, I always thought in those days that obviously it's changed now, and there are obviously a lot of skinheads. Well, well into black culture, and we're not racist at all. But yeah. then there was also this kind of Skinhead music that was like, but that's our music. <laughs> that's yeah. reggae, reggae, reggae. That's scar, scar, scar. You know, you just because you like it doesn't mean you can just like take it from us and pretend like it's yours and it, like had nothing to do with black people. But this happens. I, I always a lot. thought that was a weird juxtaposition, but um, I think the good Skinheads took it over. Yeah, I think you're right, and it, and things you know that sort of thing has changed. There's some things that obviously are still continuing, but. But yeah, and 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 you're also talking of that and Brixton and music and and fashion and whatnot. Um, your brother is it? Your older brother, maybe or younger? Was yeah, he in a sound system? Because they were the sound system. So I think you mentioned yeah. Saxon sound system, don't you? Because I remember them coming around the estate on the back of a little lorry or truck or something with the speakers. Right, yeah. It was it was amazing. Yes, I mean they basically used to um, break into buildings and steal the electricity from the street lamp. Yeah. <laughs> and just, I and didn't just know that. That's brilliant. And just, and just have parties all over London, you know? I mean, you know, it was a case of it, we we built my I was raised in a nightclub, my granddad Bertie, um, he had a um, a nightclub, a Shabin. Yeah, let's you know, talk we, about that. I read about he that. He had a Shabin on 30 Effa Road in Brixton. And it was quite, you know, it was one of the most famous ones in London because we had, you know, Cassius Clay before he was Muhammad Ali used to come down there. Um, Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, Norman Lent, Norman Lent, Norman Mandy, who was the leader of um, the uh, one of the kind of more lefty um, Jamaican government, you know, uh, what do you call them? President, not president. I don't know what to, is it. Are they prime ministers there? I always get confused prime sometimes. Is, is it prime minister? Yeah, prime minister? I think it is. And um, and so you know, there's a lot of, and that was you know, my earliest memories are sitting on the top of the steps because if you imagine the front door to the base is like a basement to go down under the house, and it's one of them tall five floor houses in Brixton. And then it's got a door at the back of the basement, so you can come in through the house or in through the street. And so, yeah, it was. I think black people ended up having to do that because if you were four black guys, you were not getting into any club in London. No. Unless it was a black people club, you know? You, yeah. And so it was, you know, my granddad said, yeah, well, they had to make their own parties and make their own fun because that was the only way they could kind of listen to their music and control their environment and go and have a drink without any kind of, you know, getting beat up or being, you know, dormant, not letting them in and... Um, and, you know, you, as a black girl, you could get in if you were pretty, if yeah. the doorman liked you, you know, but there's no way they were going to let... I mean, it, it just wasn't... It wasn't... It was just a, a racist kind of thing, you know. You weren't going to get in if you were black. And so they created their own nightclubs and jabines and parties and sound systems came out of that and sound clashes. I mean, Notting Hill Carnival in those days, was you just used to find your corner and find your sound system and you'd just be there all day. Yeah, yeah. You know, once you found your, your sound system that you loved. And I mean, that, I mean that, those are the, some of the best memories of my life in those early days of Carnival. Yeah, and, me too. And you go to the party, the, the after party, you know that they were broadcast where that was happening. And, and it, it came out of necessity and survival and actually just having a break from it, life in terms of race, racism and being in that world was just so much harder on a daily, day-to-day basis. So there needed to be some kind of release. And the release was uh, My Granddad's Club and Southnisms and Pirate Radio was another oh, thing. Yes. You never listened to normal radio. It was always... Um, you know, Kiss in the early days. stations. Remember LWR? LWR radio that was a good one exactly all of that stuff now let's talk about that a little bit because um what were you list I want to know what young now is it okay because obviously you're saying your book and you people know this that you were called you were Deborah is that was it Deborah wasn't it and I believe it was one of the only female prophets you were named after that's right isn't it I I was yeah she's a she's a judge in the bible in the bible yeah one of the few strong women in the bible i like that and that definitely as was an, the right name for your mum to pick is what i'm getting at she i think she almost kind of you know she gave you that name and it's taken you you know you literally are a, a strong goddess powerful woman if i may yeah, say so and so so you were so what were you listening you were listening to a bit of pirate radio what were you listening to as a teenager did you listen to sort of soul uh, those soul kind well, of stations my and stuff kind of 
the mean, I, I, the, the first rock record I heard was um, Whole Lot of Love by Led Zeppelin because it was um, the theme tune to Top of the Pops. Right, and of Top course. Of the Pops, like, in the daytime, my brother was in the sound system, so he would just be playing the, the mixtapes all day, loud, full volume, which drove me crazy. <laughs> kind of put me off ragga, to be honest. Um, and then Top, I just, anything that was like musical on television, I would just be obsessed by it. Like, I was watching Top of the Pops. I'd be one of those kids, you know, with an old school... Um, television, television is where you could sit right in front of them, mm. and you know, seven, seven o'clock on a Thursday afternoon was my window into a completely different world, like a world that I knew nothing about, and I was just transfixed to it. And I remember the outfits and the clothes and the makeup and the songs, and it was like a completely different style of music. Because if you imagine that, the music, like when I listened to like major radio stations like BBC One, I was, I was like, God. Who likes his music? This music is weird. Where's the groove? Where's the bass? Where's the chops? <laughs> like, it was such an alien thing to me when I was, I remember being really young and thinking, who wants to listen to that? It sounds terrible. Um, and then, you know, Tom Lotz had this major influence on me, but, and then it kind of like, from thinking it sounded terrible to thinking like, it's so different. And that's so exciting for me. Yeah. As, as someone who, you know, I knew I wanted to do music, but I had no idea how to get into it. So it wasn't until really I got into teenage years that I started buying my own records and being into my own thing. I was just watching a documentary last night about Lovers Rock because, you know, everyone's talking about Small X. And yes, I haven't seen it yet and I'm ashamed to say. Oh my God, I haven't seen it either, but because I'm, I have to wait for my partner, she wants to see it and I'm not allowed to watch it before. You know? <laughs> and so, and uh, I was like, God, you know, I was watching it and it's like, that was that was the beginning of my teenage years, you know. Sandra Cross, Carl Thompson, Janet Kay, you know, Lovers Rock on all these tunes and all these raves. Yeah. Um, in these kind of pleated dresses and hair. And I remember going to all that stuff and I love it. And then feeling that, but this isn't me. Yeah. You know, this isn't me. I don't really feel, and I think it's also sexuality, not really wanting to crub up with a guy and have some guy pull me and rub himself all over me. Yeah. I was a bit like, yeah, it's not me. And I think that was the kind of discovery of, you know, I think... For me, I was very eager to leave mm. everything that I knew. I, I wanted to leave it all behind and discover something new because I wasn't comfortable and I wasn't happy. And I, I haven't found myself yet. Mm. Um, and I just was, there was just a kind of instinctive thing. Like, if I don't do it, it's not going to happen. Mm. No, no one's going to help me get out of this or get out of that. And that's why education was so important to me because we had no money, like zero money. Um, and I think when you have zero money, your parents don't like say you can be a doctor, you can be a doctor. They don't do that to you because they know that they haven't got the money to help it happen, to yeah. make it happen. And so I realised at 13, I remember starting the 13th year and having to choose my subjects and I couldn't choose all the subjects that I wanted. And I was just kind of felt limited and I thought, God, this is my only way to get out of this and discover what I want to do is education. And that's when I started working really hard and got really good qualifications, qualifications and stayed an extra year to get even more qualifications and then went to, um, to get a diploma, did really well there, did really well at university because I saw that as like, that's my only chance. Mm. You know, that's my only chance. Otherwise, being the only girl in four boys, you know, I'm just going to be like, oh, she's just going to get married and have kids and we don't have to worry about her, you mm. know? And so... That was really, really important to me. Um, and I think that's one of the saddest things about our society now, that education is not free. Higher education is not free mm. anymore. Because I think that affects working class kids way, way more than everybody else. You of know, course. That's why you see like so many posh singers and posh actors now and posh mm -hmm. artists now, because their parents can afford to send them to higher education. That costs a lot of money. 100%. You know, it's kind of almost like the death of the working class artists yeah. going all the way through it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I do work with some of the universities and some of the, um, the, the courses that are musical, and I do work with some of the kids, but I always, it breaks my heart that um, this, that higher education isn't free. Because yeah. I think that's the only chance if you have any talent or you have any dreams or you think you can make better yourself. Having a free education is the one thing that you can do by yourself that will get you there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, I was definitely a, um, 
I, I, there's a lot of survival in there, you know, yeah. and there's a lot of feeling uncomfortable and instinctively wanting to to just what what am I supposed to be doing? I'm, this is not this is not me. I need to go and find me. And I had a few pivotal things that happened to me that kind of knocked me onto that path pathway. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't know how I would have got there. And I have to say, most of those things were quite horrible. Right. Know? Right, so not something you really want to go into. Now. Is, that, is, is this stuff in the I book? Know, I, can go, I can go into it. Well, you can, can talk it, about whatever you want, and I'm sure I mean, everybody out have, there wants to hear... I have, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sure, I'm just saying, I'm sure everybody out there would, wants to hear, you know, I'd be very happy yeah, to hear whatever you I want to talk about. I had an abusive boyfriend at 17 years old that was way older than me. He was 29 and I was 17, just 17. Mm. And he was very controlling, very possessive. I was a very shy Christian church girl. Mm. And there was this one night where, you know, I had a friend of mine and she was much older than me um, at college. And she was like, you know, you don't have to just take this. You can just say no. You can just say, I don't, don't want to do that. And, and I was just thinking about that. And I wanted to enter a, a dancing competition with my friend called Namdi. And my boyfriend said, no, you can't do that. You're not entering some dance competition with some boy. And I was like, well, I can do what I want to do. You know, I'm, I'm going to do it. And he drove me to somewhere really quiet and desolate and punched me in the face. Goodness like, me. you're doing what I tell you to do, you know. And I remember I was so angry. First thing I was just, I couldn't believe I got myself into that situation because, I, you know, you just take the blame. And then I was like, oh, hold on, I have to get myself out of a situation because I'm still in his car and he's punched me twice and now he wants to take me back to his house and I'm going to get the hell beaten out of me. So then survival kicks in. So uh, I tried to, I got out of the car and tried to run and he found me and dragged, in front of a bunch of people, dragged me back into the car. Nobody did anything. And then got to his house and started crying. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I was just feeling because I love you and all that kind of stuff. And I remember sitting there going like, take me home, take me home for like four hours. Um, and I realised, he realised he couldn't beat me up because then there'd be consequences. I have family, I have uncles. And so he tried to do that. And at that moment, I realised that relationship was over. I wasn't, I, I, I'd kind of been dragged into it anyway by not being able to tell this guy no because I was too shy and I just thought I had to do what men told me to do. And so that was a lesson. And then that was the end of that. And I actually got out of that relationship by going up north to Middlesbrough, to Teesside, to study. Right. And basically, he, he couldn't find me. I moved into a house. He didn't know the address. He couldn't find me. And that's how I got out of that relationship. Mm. And so that was one. And then um, and another one was just I had a, a stalker. When I got to 24, much more, I'd been for a few things and I was much more growing up. And then I had this stalker who attacked me um, after, you know, I, I was at um, Brixton Fridge. And I lived at number one St Matthews Road. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where that yeah, is. I do. So, I do. you know, that's a short walk, short walk, yeah. right? Literally, diagonal short walk. And I, I rang, my friends were like, oh, should we walk you home? I said, no, no, it's just there. I can see it. I just, and I'm, I'm a runner by nature. I'm a sports person, runner. And so I run to ask, feel somebody behind me. Cut a long story short, they tried to attack me. I screamed and, you know, after he tried to grab me up and I screamed and he ran away. And then I saw him in the street a few couple of weeks later, went to the court. He got off his word against mine. So he got off, you know, because he's a man and, you know, obviously. Yeah, we know. You know, and uh, then he just started to stalk me because he would just come up behind me in bricks and be like, I know where you live. Oh, my God. And uh, and then I was basically just terrified. That completely changed my personality. I went from being, I'd got to 24, 23, 24, and I turned into, I shaved my head. I was feeling very strong and looking very beautiful with my shaven head. I found myself, I was looking good. And then um, I just went back into my shell for months into winter and I wouldn't go out, you know, and it's, it's dark at half past three and I wouldn't go out when it was dark. And, and that changed my personality until this one day, I was walking towards Brixton Station, I remember, and he came up behind me and he said, I know where you live and I'm gonna come round at four o'clock in the morning. And I turned around this guy and I just got so scared and I ran off. And as I ran, was running, I remember I, it got slower and slower in my pace, slower and slower. And then I just kind of, in my head, I was like, I know where you live. I know where you live. I know where you live. He knows where I live. He knows, he knows where I live. And I got angrier and angrier. Mm. And I was like, this is going to be my life now, running from this guy. Mm. And I just got so, like, steam coming out my head. And I turned around and I ran back to him and just cast him like a dog. <laughs> I was like, every lyric.
music I've ever heard in the street came out because he tried to rape a 13-year-old and he tried oh to rape goodness. some other woman and I brought it all up and like, you tried to do... And I, every cuss word from birth came out and I watched this big monster guy. I thought he was really tall, this monster guy. He just shriveled in front of my face. Wow. And turned into a little mouse and was really scared and was looking around and everyone started looking at him and then he kind of like scuttled off. And I just cussed him as he scuttled off, you know? Yeah, you took his and, power away from him, basically. And then, yeah, and then it just changed me. And then, like, after that, I was just like, OK, nobody can tell me nothing. <laughs> you know, I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. It was this powerful confidence thing that just, like, it just exploded in me. And that was really pivotal because then it just became about, OK, I'm going to do what I'm going to do now. And I left my interior design job and I was just like, I'm not wasting any more time or space, you know, with um, doing things that I um, don't want to do. Yes. And situations I don't want to be in, you know. So those are the things that kind of, I imagine for me, when I talk about in the book and when I really look look at it all in hindsight, is I see it like a ping ball machine, you know, like ping, 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 trying to get, because as a child, nobody handed me a guitar or or gave me piano lessons. I didn't get a Beatles record at five and say, check this out. You know, like a lot of white rock people, they, you know, they talk about being two years old and being, you know, taken to see Led Zeppelin or yeah, something. Yeah, that's and, so you true. Know, and I'm like, I didn't have that upbringing. I, I, I had to go and find it and search it out. And I knew rock music was the thing I wanted to do. And so it was just trial and error and experimentation to get to that point and all of those bad things happen because I put myself in vulnerable situations um, it's not my fault and I'm blaming myself by no, the way no of course yes um, it's, it's their fucking fault yes um, and um, but and it, but it kind of was a pinball machine and then I kind of got to it just streamlined me in terms of who I wanted to be and how I wanted to do it and then I finally got the prize that's kind of how I saw my life and I think it's quite an interesting story when you you know, how's a black girl like me end up being a lead singer of a rock band and sending millions of, millions of records, you know? Yes. And it, you know what, when you talk about that and, and reading your book, um, you talk of, there's a bit where you talk about your mother and, and I mean, you can tell me I'm wrong about this maybe, but it does remind me very much of the, when you talk about your mum where she was so isolated and she, she couldn't cope with being on her own so much. And in Wiltshire, I think it was at the time, you can correct me as we go along if I'm wrong about anything. And how she just got up and went, you know what? I'm going back to London. Yeah. She went back to yeah. Granda, your grandfather. What's right? No, uh, sorry, is it right? Bertie Wright. Yeah, Bertie, Bertie Wright. She went back to Bertie Wright's, and she took you, you, you know, her kids, and she just, and she then sort of trained to be and became a nurse. Right? Is that right? Yeah. And it just she reminds was, me. Yeah, of she that. was already trained to be a nurse, but had to redo because England didn't accept as typical. Yeah. England didn't accept the qualifications that she had in Jamaica. So she had to return and she was a nurse for five years, saved up her money. Um, my granddad helped her buy the first house and then she bought the second house. You know, That's she, right. And I think she, I got that sense of like, you know what, I've, I'm in this situation, I'm going to get myself out of this situation. Yeah. And that's became kind of like a typical thing yes. um, in my life, you know, especially being a white girl in a, sorry, especially being a black girl in a white man's yes. world, you yes. know, in lots of different situations, but particularly within the rock world. Yes. Um, it's kind of like this idea of, well, I don't care that there's no examples. I mean, I always say to kids when I work with kids, and they say, well, you know, it's really hard because I don't see myself in that. And I don't see there's nobody like me and whatever. And I, I always say to them, you know what? Be the first. Yes. Don't, don't because nobody else has done it, don't be the second, be the first. That's you know? what the world needs, isn't um, it? Originals. And I think it's good to have roles and for good to have black people and gay people and women in certain roles so people can see, well, if they did, I can do it. Yes. But I also think, it's, it's it, you know, don't wait for, for to see a black face to think that, oh, well, if they can do it, I can do it. Also be like, oh, I'll just be the first. I'm going to do it my way first. And, yes. um, and then one can follow me. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and how do you feel about that with people? Because obviously, I mean, I, I'll admit it myself, when you first uh, came around, for me in Skunk and Nancy that's what struck and I was like yes there's like a lead female black singer of this amazing band and it's rock it's not just sort of like stereotyped into you know you're black so you have to do this or you have to do that 
Uh, um, you did what you wanted to do. It's music. It's it's all you know, and it's all tied in rock and blues. You know, where did they get it from? You know, we can go round and round and with that. Um, but but how did you did you feel about that with everybody? Did did you feel that was a weight on you, or did you just really go with that and we were like, yeah, great, this is I'll carry that, wear that crown, so to speak, or was that a bit of a pressure well, on you? Do you? I think that the, the most important thing to remember is there was no social media. Yeah, that's there were true. No phones. That's true. And so that really, we had a very diff- different upbringing in our band compared to what people have now. If you're yes. a new artist now, you would feel that weight, and it would appear within the hour if you had a song that everyone just suddenly just loved within two weeks you could be the biggest band in the world literally that you know and a year later you're you know earning the riches from that so with us it was it was just things just it it happened quite quickly in comparison to um other bands at the time but quite quickly it's still a couple of years you know where um i think that success for bands now is just almost instant you know but I, I had a very simple, and I've talked about this before, I have a very simple way and had a very simple way of dealing with things um, in that, you know, I got into, I just had this image of, you know, when someone's kind of, I mean, okay, let me just say two points next to each other. So you have the audience, the people reaction, yes. and then you have the industry reaction. Now, people just loved us straight away all across Europe. And then the industry kind of tried to repress us because I wasn't a typical young blonde girl that they could control or fancy. And they thought their thing was like, if I don't fancy her or if I'm not into her, then that my viewpoint is bigger than everybody else's. And that means that she's not. You know, it's like they judge it. They judge everything by their own penisometer. Yes. You know? <laughs> that kind of, you know, um, older white guy running his corporations. You know, it's like, well, if I, it doesn't make my penis go hard, then, yeah. then it's like, and I've heard that expression used so many times. Kind of, but the people saw the politics, saw me and saw all of the kind of aspects and the depth of the band and just loved us. Our concerts were full. We would never get radio play. We would never get those TV programs. You know, Britpop just kind of swiped to the side saying, you're not representative of British music. Mm. But we became huge anyway. Yes. And in huge in a lot of countries, which is, didn't happen to a lot of British bands. You know, mm. you, some of those massive Britpop bands, apart from um, obviously Blur and Oasis, but, you know, you go into Europe and, you know, those bands, are, just, they're all the way at the bottom of the... the um, the, the festival list and we're headlining. Yeah, well, I mean, you this know? is a thing. Um, yeah. And that was the difference, you know, between that um, and, and Skankanansi. And one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because I felt like our story wasn't getting told. But then at the same time, you know, when, for me, I had a simplistic way of dealing with, with racism and stuff that people were throwing at us. It's like, imagine if, you know, you look at me and you're like, you makes you feel like uncomfortable and vulnerable and you're a man, you've got ego and, you know, you don't know how to deal with all that. So you just reject it. And you reject it by saying horrible things about me or giving me a bad review and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I kind of always thought it's like, well, that you're just giving me your uncomfortability and expecting me to carry the weight of all of the things that yeah. you can't deal with because that's what you're used to. That's how you're used to dealing with it. You know, like, here's this big boulder. You take this, and I'll just walk on my merry way. And I was always kind of like, no, you can have your boulder back. I'm not taking the weight of your stuff. I'm, it's taken me all this time, 10 years, to be happy about myself. And I feel great, so I'm not going to take it. You can hold on to your, the weight of your, you know, yeah. racism, whatever you got. And I'm going to keep walking with my, my shoulders free and just not be weighed down by all, by all of the issues that you think I should be weighed down with. And that kind of approach, it actually works really well. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you've, you've got it nailed, really. And, and it, I mean, I've, I'd, like I say, I was a big, I'm, I am a big fan. I was a big fan when, when um, you exploded with Skunk and Nancy when you came back, when you came around and just because you are so unique and, and, and you know the essence of this show with contrib- the contribution of uh, black music. So th- there we get into that thing of with with you where oh she's a black woman who makes rock music, which is seen as white. But of course, as we mm. all know, rock has a, a real relationship and its roots were in blues and whatnot. And we can go back to you know as as, as you, you know. You talk to any um, 
uh, you talk, you can pick out the most famous rock bands in the world and say, what were you listening to when you started the band? And they'll be like, Big Willie Hansen and, you know, just all blues, all black blues players. You know, you talk to Elvis. What did Elvis get? Where did he get his music from? Yeah. You know, where did Frank Sinatra get those ideas from? Frank Sinatra got his ideas from jazz, isn't to jazz, saxophonists and trumpeters and being in big band music. Yeah. Um, And and that's the the thing of it. It's like they know that they got their money, their their stuff from Sister Rosetta Tharp, you know, when she played in 1952 at the train station. Yes. And stuff like that. And and that's the reality of it. Um, And then it gets taken over by um, other groups of people well, and that's fine. You know, that's not a problem with that. But I think that people have to remember that rock music was black music first. Well, this is my point. <laughs> yeah. This is my point. It's and this is, blues. Yeah, and this is my point because, you know, for me, you are one of these artists that encap- can caps- encapsulates, encapsulates, goodness me, I can't get the word out. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it completely kind of, it, that's what you represent for me is a, a huge artist that has a huge influence musically or in the UK uh, and it all stems back to what we're talking about here, but the contribution of, of black British music and art. And, and you are yes. definitely the forefront of that. And it was so important to get you on this show for that reason. And just because you're you uh, and, um, you know, it, it, it's it's interesting. But yes, yeah, so, and it's really important to say that, isn't it? Because I, I do think yeah. there is a lot of the they, people see you maybe as... I mean- a black artist doing white rock music in the white, and yes, it's a white industry, but it isn't. It's it ultimately it's black I mean, music. I think now it's very it's much, much, much more diverse. But in the nineties, rock music was just seen as like something that white people would be into only. And yes. you'd go to gigs in certain countries, and you, you know, there were very few black people there. Mm. You know, and I think that you know, there's a sense of like, yes, it comes from black music, but it doesn't. Have, we don't own it. No. <laughs> you know, we don't own all music. You know, people can do what they want, and that's the beauty of music is it's not owned by this culture or that culture, everything influences everything else. I mean, unless there's a spiritual side to it and you're not supposed to do that with that tune, that's different. You have to have respect for people's religion and respect for people's culture and not appropriate it. But at the same time, you know, I think the one, the, the best music comes from diversity and having an open attitude to yeah. all kinds of music. I mean, you know, in terms of black music, you know, one of the reasons why um, I wrote the book is because there were just so many books coming out about Britpop. Mm. Britpop, Britpop, Britpop. And I was like, you guys go on like there's nothing else that happened at that time. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you know yourself how yes. many, how varied yes. the scene was in those yeah. days. A big reggae scene. Yeah. There was a big R&B scene, post-soul to soul, all that stuff. So we still had there drum and bass. There was trip-hop. And, yeah. There was drum and bass and Goldie. And I would say when I look back, the music that's influenced what we're listening to now um, has got, um, drum and bass and uh, reggae influences. If you listen to like that kind of Latiny Justin Bieber kind of stuff that's going on, that's really basis of reggae. When yeah. the minute you go chink, boom, chink, yeah. chink, boom, chink, that's reggae. And I think that for me, you can draw a line from Goldie all the way from Stormzy to to Stormzy. Yeah. And in the way that way, you're gonna hit dubstep. You're gonna hit two step. You're gonna hit this, you're going to hit that, you're going to hit drill, you're going to hit grime, and you're going to get to Stormzy. And I think that, you know, the music, that drum and bass and jungle has been much more influential as a music form and a genre. You know, you listen to, you know, London Grammar, you listen to a lot of bands, you know, that's, you can hear the rap and the reggae and the drum and bass and jungle in it. Absolutely. You know, Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons why I told the story, because I'm like, actually... It's kind of like people didn't even realise that Skunk and Nancy was so big we headlined Glastonbury. Mm. And they, 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 they don't realise that. Mm. I know that. I mean, who doesn't know that? But anyway, Karen. <laughs> but I mean, on mass, you know. Yes, I and it's because yeah. it's not talked about in the British press because they just put us to the sideline like it was a bad gig or it wasn't good. Actually, it wasn't the most, one of the most successful, one of the biggest audiences Glastonbury have ever had for a headline set, uh, thing back in the day. And, you know, Prodigy as well, they headline Glastonbury. But it's kind of like Prodigy's music and Skakanetsu's music and Goldie's music, we were all kind of coming from the same diverse London kind of inner city sounds um, and regurgitating it in a new and way. And I think that that has been way more influential than Britpop, you know, Britpop. So that's, I, I just like, if you want to tell a story, you've got to tell it, you want to hear a story you've got and you're not hearing it, you've got, you know, and it's your story, you've got to write it yourself. Um, 
uh, a sort of symptom of the way this country sometimes does respond to music. And, and like you say, if you're not kind of someone that they want to pop pop into the some bizarre page and the this, that and the other, then forget it, you know. And I, think, I think that they assume that people are uncomfortable with things that people are not uncomfortable with. I agree, I totally with, you know? agree. It's like yeah. they assume that black people, you know, that, you know, you put a... Uh, like Stormzy headlined Glastonbury last year, right? And it was phenomenal. And it's like, of course he was. And there's been a lot of artists that big that Dizzy Rascal could have done that spot at some at one point. Yeah. You know, there's girl um, black girl bands that could have done that at one point. But you got to remember that when Skunk and Nancy uh, announced that they were, you know, when it was announced that we were headlining Glastonbury there was a massive wave of hatred and negativity from the British press about it. And it's the same press, that the same negativity that Jay-Z got. Yeah. It's not really a rock band. It's not, you know, it's not rock, you know. And, all, and imagine that, but 20 years before and 15 years, I think it was beforehand. That's what we got. Mm. And people forget that we that we got a lot of negativity. And Michael Levy's got a lot of negativity for a headline, for Skunk and Nancy headlining and getting the biggest spot on the Sunday night being the last band to headline that of, the, of that century. Um, and so I think it's just, you know, in some ways that made them maybe draw back a bit and not have these big black headliners, you know, because yeah. they absolutely could have. And, you know, but cause Michael Levis did a very brave thing at the time. I agree, yeah. And I think people forget how hard that was for us to do. And we went onto that stage like, fuck all of you. Mm. <laughs> you know, you can go fuck off. And we were so angry with some of the press reports, you know, Skunk and Nancy, they, they don't deserve it. They, it's so negative. Yeah. And we had something to prove and we did, you know. It's mad because you're exactly who should be doing Glastonbury as well. That's the crazy thing because it, it gets taken over. The more popular it's become, suddenly the sun and the mirror and all these tabloids are sort of deciding what they, their view, like you said, their view of what they uh, they assume people are kind of going to like and not like from their sort of twisted um, and actually, but, you were exactly yeah, the band I mean, that should be headlining like Glastonbury. Glastonbury stayed in that position and only had rock and indie bands, yeah. or only had certain type of rock and indie bands. It would be so stale at this point in time. It yeah. would be stale because it's like, you know, rock and indie music isn't as big as it was. You yeah. know, there's bigger music genres. And yeah. so you have to reflect, your festival has to reflect that. But you being you, it obviously spurred you on. And, I, and that's what I love about you. And I'm, I, I can relate to you in that way because I'm the kind of person who's, if I'm told no and no, you can't do that and you shouldn't be doing it, then, then you're going to do oh, it. I'm going to do it. <laughs> Rebel, um, where were you born? And it's great. I'm a Capricorn, January the 16th. Oh. What are you? Well, so came people off. out there who are not into their zodiac signs, but we, we like a bit of that. What, when's your birthday? Uh, August 1st, Leo. Oh, you're a Leo, of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the best, well, it's a good sign to be if you want to be, you know, out there shaking your thing and kind of, you know, breaking boundaries and whatnot. But, um, yeah, so... Rebelist, we're rebelistic. We're yeah. rebelistic. We don't like being told no. Yeah, 100%. And we love, we love a challenge. You, yeah, really, really do. And I think, like you said, it goes back to growing up in, I think it's in that world in Brixton and it's like that Brixton was all about, I mean, it was like you, you say in your book, people were... I mean, it was kind of almost like, yeah, ghettoized. I mean, there was a point in Brixton when I was growing up. It was ghettoized, it was a ghetto, you know? Yeah, it wasn't a ghetto, but it was ghettoized. And and we were shoved in there. We were deprived of funding. You know, I mean, I remember remember some of the boys that I was on my estate, they, they were between the ages of 10 to, say, 14, 15, 16, were dragged off the street for no reason, put under mattresses and police cells and kicked the crap out of them and no one could do anything about it. You know, yeah. that was what it was like. Um, but anyway, but growing having being in that kind of environment and being... For, I think a lot of, you know, like you say, it can kind of really... Um, breed something within you can't it where you kind of what you like well give yeah. me a, give me your best shot you think that's going to hurt me or you think that's going to do you know what i mean you know, i think that when i went to shot. university i realized that oh my god i'm so much more streetwise than you kids <laughs> i've been literally i've been washing up and doing ironing my clothes and washing my clothes from nine years old and cooking from 10 years old because jamaican mothers are like you think I'm, you know, what do you think I'm your slave? I'm just going to cook for you for the rest of your life. You know, <laughs> they want to really, but, you know, and so I was like, I had to tidy my room. I had to do my ironing. I taught my brothers how to iron. I had to wash the clothes and you had to use a washing machine. You know, the only thing I hadn't done up to that point, I mean, I'd look, I'd, I'd sat their jobs. I'd looked after myself. I knew how to do work out money and save money and stuff. 
And I went to into university and I felt straight away so much more grown up because a lot of these kids were literally coming from home like we all were, but hadn't done anything. Yeah. You know, just assume that plates just get washed up by themselves, you know. <laughs> um, and I think that Brixton, that I start the, the book with um, the phrase, I've always been a Brixton girl, because mm. that that gave me such a good foundation for everything else that was happening in my life. And it gave me the, the ability to, to, to work through challenges. And uh, I will say, because there are so many people in Brixton that we'd always want to show you their willy in dirty corners, I, yeah. was, I was always on high penis alert. <laughs> you know, That's it's true, like, isn't it? You what have that, that thing where you can, you can hear the danger coming and you, you, you know, rather than just walking in blindly. Into it, there's a lot of flashing going on. I remember that. I'm sorry, yeah, there was a weird couple of guys that were always showing me their willy and there was one at the end of my road and I knew it would, when he was going to be there when he wasn't there. So I would just work around that, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's like, you say that to police and they would do nothing about it, you know? So um, they just, oh, just don't get over it, just don't look. And I'm like, yeah, if I don't look and then he runs up behind me when I've just turned my back on him. But anyway, um, I think it gave me a very strong sense of um, common sense very strong instinctual aware vision you know yeah. like awareness aware awareness <laughs> um and gave me kind of balls you know a bit of attitude little bricks and attitude you know um but also a lot of empathy because we were in there were people much worse than us than ourselves yeah and, you know and, and so also true. you know you knew how to deal with police you know you knew how to not get involved with ruckuses because you were raised in a place that one foot wrong and you were in a cell literally that's how powerful and corrupt they were and there was nothing and you could so do about you that knew, you, you knew yeah. how to not get yourself into trouble and i think that traveling the world it, i did I, I, some valuable experiences especially when you've been traveling with people and you're like you know i was in brazil and we got mugged in brazil but i saw it happening I saw it happening three, four minutes. Be- I predicted it because of what my uh, personalised was, was doing. We were going to, down to some beach uh, from our um, hotel that we were staying at and it was a local beach. And, and I was like, she's like, I'm going to bring my camera. I said, don't bring your camera. They're not museum subjects. You know, you can't take pictures of people like that without their knowledge. Mm. And she insisted on bringing the camera because it was the last day. And she got the camera out, started taking pictures. I said, put the camera back. They're looking at us. Put the camera. And I was like, okay, we need to leave now. Because I could feel it. Yeah. They were really happy about having someone, you know, show pictures. And then, you know, and I just thought we're going to get mugged on the way back because we had to walk down this completely isolated beach. I saw this guy running towards us. I thought he's going to mug us, you know? Yeah. And for her, it was just kind of like everything's like, oh, you know, it'd be fine. It's fine. Oh, they're going to, no, they're not. And I'm like, of course. And I predicted it all. And that's because I'm from Brixton. Yeah, I, I know what it. you're talking about. <laughs> you know, I, I can I know see what it coming. Yeah. You, you, well, you sense, I believe we sense energies anyway, but you can feel stuff. And I, I mean, you're probably similar to me in that way, where also many times in situations, I've just stared people down there's a thing i used to say about coming from oh, Brixton. Yeah. you just gotta look them in the eye and look yeah, them straight like in that, the big eye shoulders. yeah <laughs> and i've carried that with me all my life and it most of the time it's done me okay but you know there's a couple of times maybe you know you still got to be careful haven't you out there with, with who you're dealing with not advising yeah. people to go around no. doing that yeah but you I mean, know I, what i'm saying definitely at the time i got mugged and we he he didn't take anything off it because i was like we haven't fucking got anything and he goes no 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 and then he ran off but I mean, remember being in South Africa in Johannesburg at night, yeah. and that was when I was like, "Okay, we need to go. We're not going down that street because you. It's like there's your you shouting at someone is not going to do it. They're just going to stab you. You know, yeah. it's a different situation. You've got to weigh the situation. Knowing up. When, yeah, knowing when. Yeah, knowing when not to. But I know what you're talking about, and I've shouted. We're like twins, me and you. I mean, I can't believe we haven't had these conversations <laughs> because I was telling someone the other day. Brixton, it would happen, and sometimes a few times, and I just kind of would get really leery and, yeah. and I'd just kind of run off because uh, they just want to get away from the noise or whatever, but and think that you're crazy. But um, so yeah, so, so uh, what was what was I just thinking about? Something you said just now that made me was wanted to lead on to something else. But yeah, okay. So what? Let me talk about this. So what you mentioned a few names there. We've talked about Goldie. We've talked about. Um, you know, different kind of British artists. Is there anyone? So I mean, obviously, when I was around, 
well, I don't know when she came, when she had her first hit. I was probably about 13. But Sade, for example, she was a big, um, had a huge mm. sort of influence on me and impact of a British... Oh, she's a lucky bitch, that one, eh? She just comes <laughs> along every 10 years, put a record that massive. And it's just, she's just one of those artists. She's like a girl. It just undulates for them until they're ready and they just go, get maths. And they, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always laughing with my other half because she loves Sade. I'm like, Sade's the laziest artist ever. <laughs> Amazing. She's she not from Brixton. Nothing. She comes out with an album every 10 years and disappears and she's massive. It's because she's, she's you know, not well. from Brixton. That's my guess, but we still love her, though. We still got love for her. <laughs> we still love her. Maybe that's I, the joke. I always, I always take the piss out of her. I know, I know. I think that's brilliant, actually. I really love that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yes, yeah, so, and, and what, um, like you say, we were listening to I Was as well, LWR. It was one that I, because I used to love the jingle. Do you remember the jingle? LWR, no, you are in tune the best right, in London W-R-N. town. <laughs> that was the jingle. Apologies out there. You'd probably rather skin sing than me. But yeah, so that was the jingle. But I was listening to a not. lot of... Um, <laughs> Listening to a lot of soul, um, and, and Loose Ends was one of my favourites. Now, did yeah. you ever get a bit in, did you get Got down with it? You listen, on the that's the one. Because yeah. you, I mean, you, let's talk a bit about this. This has led me on to this, what I wanted to talk about. So you you DJ as well, which I actually, did. I knew you did, because I, I follow you and on social media, and I know that I've seen you, but I didn't realise, I mean, you've DJed at Fabric, you've done what I call proper DJing. Yeah, um, no, I go uh, Coachella, and yeah, I, um, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing to DJ. It's difficult and it's easy. It's, it's way more fun, but it took a long, it takes a long time to be good because there's so many levels. I, 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 I think as a DJ, I got in quite a quite high level because I'm skinned from Skunk and Nancy, right? But then you have harder to fall because yeah. you're skinned from Skunk and Nancy. So, but I also got on a high level because there was a lot I already knew about music. So I already knew about tempo and keys and different kind of grooves. And it was really easy for me to see the subtle sides of, because I play techno tech house. I can play soul, I can play lots of different, I mean, when you're a DJ, you can play it all. But, and so there was a lot of technical things like learning how to use gear, easy, um, keys, easy, grooves, different genres of uh, house music and different genres of techno, easy, because I can hear the subtle nuances and all that. Um, and te- tempo is a massive thing. Once you learn how to mix, it's fun. But the most thing that you need the most as a DJ is reading a room, which I got from the rock yes. thing. So I'm very good at reading a room. I'm not always so fast about... Oh, I wish I had a track like this because that would work really well. So and it takes a long time to be a good DJ. Um, it's a complicated thing and you have to have a head for spending hours being nerdy in front of computers. This is the thing, but, the geek thing, right? Yeah, that's, that's mm, the geek side. To be geek, you know, and, and also because I was, um, because I'm skin from the Kankanazi, I've, is um, my the, the the failure level is um, I come in at this level so I can fall at this level, and I never got to do a hundred gigs of residency for two or three years with nobody. You know, I never got to like, I never did tiny gigs where I could just learn and learn and learn. My first gig was two thousand people. My you know? God, how daunting! I know, nerve wracking. So, um, but I always did enough to kind of keep it there. And then after now, after ten years. What was it now? Eleven years of DJing. Yeah, I'm, I'm incredible because I didn't realise it was at that level. I know you do, and I, I maybe just haven't really connected, and I haven't. But I'd love to hear you. And and you worked with Timo Mass, didn't you? So you ventured out of you ventured into different genres, and you obviously yeah. love different genres. Well, I, well, I did an album with Timo Mass and Martin Butrick. Uh, Martin Butrick being the producer, really, because Timo was much more the kind of person in the room that says do this, do that. Um, but I kind of, I mean, I worked a lot more with Martin Butrick, um, and that was weird because I, I don't know. If you've done this but I did a whole album that no one's heard because I have, unfortunately it, I can say that I have this massive row yeah the two of them had this big ass row over yeah. publishing mm. and the whole project kind of collapsed so I spent a month of my time in this god awful place and did this some of the best music I've ever done what a shame and no one's ever no one's ever heard it do you think you know? it will so, ever it's, it's there though right so is there a point maybe yeah, that you can actually talking go back to Martin because we're just working on releasing it like now so, wow oh that's you know. great so that's a bit is that a little bit of an exclusive we've got here from that, yes. that that's oh 
oh, amazing. So <laughs> I look forward to that. And of course, you know, and, and yeah, we're going... reworking it a bit and just updating it slightly. But it's, yeah. it's really good. It's just great songs. I'm great really lyrics, pleased. Songs, very dark. I'm very pleased to hear that you, that you you know you're resolving that and it will come out because I was thinking just as you said, it's not been heard. I was like, no, that's such a shame. And and of course, if something's great as well, so that's fantastic. Is there anything else that you want we we, we can expect coming up? And, and Skunk and Ants, are you still tour, right? You guys still get out on the road and you still yeah, tour so together. Yeah, so we had to cancel it obviously this year. Yes, so next year we are basically depends on if Glastonbury are open, then we can get to do our because we're supposed to be doing Glastonbury next year. Um, first time in 21 years. It's with a, part of their 50th anniversary thing. Um, so if they get to do their lovely big fat gig, then we'll be able to do our lovely fat, big fat gigs. And it's looking good with the vaccines. It's looking good, right? I think that next year's like, it's going to take a minute, but I think it's going to be, you know, be a much better year. And I think a lot of people will take a lot less for granted, hopefully. Um, and then uh, we split the tour up so that the second part is later on in the year now. But, um, and uh, yeah, what am I doing? So I'm doing some collaborations. Oh, I've just any exclusives for us? Book. Now, I can't, can't tell you. I, don't be greedy, man. I just give you a big old exclusive. <laughs> you did. Here's another one. I oh, know I'm asking for too much, aren't I? You've had one. So you had your one. So just stop this. Yeah. Um, and then um, I've got my absolute radio show, which is That's right, on you Sundays. Have. Yeah. Yeah, Sunday evenings, which is actually a lot of work, but really fun looking for new music. I Are you that. enjoying that? You're enjoying I'm it, I'm right? absolutely really loving it because, and also I've just got, I, I've got leaps and bounds better. Um, and it's just so fun to have an excuse to just sit there for hours listening to music and finding new music. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, and that's really fun. And it's, a, it's, it's something, it's a good thing to do in a lockdown when you have a lot more time. Yeah. You know? Um, and then I just got a couple of other projects, more TV stuff, that um, documentary stuff that um, that just takes a long time to to get there. You yeah, know? it does. Well, you you are very very busy, and it's you 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 know dare I say it a typical Leo got loads going on. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> true. It's, it's it's I think that I'm someone if I haven't got a lot going on, I feel like I'm going downwards. You know. Yeah. Well, I'm really and glad. Was, I'm glad about that because I, we've got we get to yeah. have skin the you know. Otherwise, we wouldn't have you, would we? If you didn't have that tenacity, shall we say? Yeah, I think it's um, you know, it's uh, it's getting a better time to be black. I think. I think for the first time in my career, um, I did a BBC. I did World Surf and I did a lot of interviews for BBC, and I did um uh, a live thing with Salma uh, in the nighttime BBC Radio Four. And I was saying, you know, this is the first time in my career that I can actually talk about things and being about being black in situations. And people kind of get it because yeah. of Black Lives Matter, because everything that's happened. Yeah. It's the first time I, in my time, in my career, that I can have conversations like this and not be seen as someone who's got a chip on their shoulder. Mm. Whereas I think before, up until this year, whenever you talked about racism or black issues, mm. you know, there was a, just a sense of, you know, you felt like, they just didn't really want to talk about it. It's a bit, nobody wants to hear about that. That's a bit too Let's dangerous not make and it scary a topic. And now I talk about black issues and black stories and people are like, and journalists are like, yeah, tell me more about that, you know? And I think people who, who want to be open, have eyes have been open this year. So I think that's a really positive thing. So I think it's a good time to be black and to be part of the picture and to keep... Um, educating and being open and talking about things like on your podcast. Yeah, I'm sorting out my podcast too, by the way. I know, I know, and I'm looking I'm forward to hearing. Um, are you coming mine? I'd love to, and, and we could talk ask more you about the questions. <laughs> oh my god, that'd be so strange. But I would love, of course, I would. Um, but I'd love talking to you. So yes. That is a really nice note to end it on where you've talked about something so positive because this is what, like you said, this podcast is, is all about. It's talking about positive contributions and hopefully people soaking that in. Um, and it's, it, it's been so good to talk to you. I'm so happy that we've had you on this show and thank you so, so much. And My we pleasure. look forward to everything that's coming up. And I'll, I hope I see you at Glastonbury. Yeah, are you going to be there? Now you're, well, now I know because I didn't know you were in the lineup. I didn't know who was actually. It's gone over my head a little bit because of what's been going on. I've not really, I've yeah. sort of almost ignored everything that has been cancelled. So now I know I, I will most definitely be there. I, yeah, I they, they <laughs> sent us the things to actually put up on our social media. And I was like, it's going to be cancelled. Let's not get people excited. And so, and then literally the next day they cancelled it. So I was glad that, that that didn't happen. But I mean, I think that 
I think we're gearing up to be, um, hopefully, have a positive year. I mean, things have changed forever. Certain things have changed forever, you know. But um, I think that, you know, let's look at the silver linings and try and be positive and get through Christmas and then um, hopefully have a fantastic year. I'm with you. I'm with you. And on that note, have a fantastic rest of the year, Skin. A brilliant Christmas in New York. And uh, I look forward to seeing you around and about soon absolutely yeah we thank you so much it's been too long 100 <laughs> thank you brixton girl thank you <laughs> the emergence of black britain is a roadworks media production hosted by me lisa moorish the show is produced by louis leeson all original music is by casey sounds the executive producer is quince garcia please do share subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts.